0: transformation, a process of transformation that come in many forms. This could be in your life. This could be in someone else's life where a transformation has taken place, where you have been witness to that. They have been changed or you have been changed by circumstance, by experience and age. It could be many things that have caused such transformation. But really, it is only when you tend to look back in those moments or back on those moments do you recognize such transformation. You recognize where you have come from and where you are now and where you are hoping to go to. And so it is in that looking back that we see the beauty of the change. But I think one of the greatest ways that we see transformation uh, is often in a simple creature in creation. So we see transformation in creation. And I just wanted to show you this picture because this flagged in my mind. From this little creature called a caterpillar, we see here from this picture this incredible transformation in this creature's life as it takes a new form. And so from a creature that crawls on its belly to a beautiful creature that flies magnificently through the air, we see a wonder of creation's transformation in this small creature. Well, today in chapter 44 of Genesis, we see such transformation. Maybe you didn't see it as we plowed through those verses pretty quickly together as we read them. There is incredible transformation. You see, here in chapter 44, we have a transformation not in a creature, but in 10 men. In ten brothers, brothers that we have come to know as wicked and vile and wretched and murderous and many other descriptive words we could give them. And so this morning with five headings, I want to reveal this to you. And the first one is this. We see Joseph's testing. Verses 1 through 13, we see this great test no longer have we as i said to those of us who were here last sunday night no longer have we finished a very uh, happy and joyous and mercy filled night in chapter 30 uh, chapter 43 do we now arrive in chapter 44 having thought maybe that joseph's testing was over that he is done with these guys these brothers All that he had wanted to do. He had tested them just as he wanted to. But we turn the page, or I do in my Bible, and I get to chapter 44 and go, wow. It continues on. It continues on. So after a party like no other, and while the brothers sleep off that party, Joseph hatches a plan. He hatches a plan a test for the brothers in verses 1 and 2 let's read it together he said then he commanded the steward of his house fill the men's sacks with food as as much money as you can as much money as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and with his money for the grain as he did as joseph and he did as joseph told him There's no doubt at this point that Joseph is a calculated guy. We said a few weeks ago, maybe last week, that he he was a guy who was thinking things through. He was a man, a very clever man, a very calculated guy. He used here a silver cup. And that we can just brush over, can't we, in many senses. Oh, he just used the silver cup, almost taking it off his table and putting it into their sack. But why is putting a silver cup so calculated Why is putting a silver cup into the sack so calculated? Well, firstly, it's very valuable. There's no need to put anything in that that bag and that sack that is not worth of value. So that's the first point. But I think more significantly was that he himself, back a number of chapters and many years have passed, back there he was sold into slavery with... 20 pieces of silver. And so I think there is a, a, a parallel here as Joseph does this. And so as the brothers woke early in the morning, we read, they're ready for home. They, they've had their party. They've come. They have received mercy from this Lord. They're not aware it's Joseph yet. And so they leave. They had a sack full and bulging of grain And, of course, they had both Simeon and Benjamin. That's the two that they were making sure they were coming home with. Simeon and Benjamin with them. What could be better at this moment for them? All safe and sound and enough food to keep their family alive in the famine. But having journeyed, as it says, a short way. A short way. Joseph sends a steward to pursue the brothers and to deliver a precisely worded accusation. So the steward catches up with the happy and delightful brothers as they were in those moments and he delivers this message in verse 4 and 5. It says this Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this place that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And so this message was relayed to them, as we read in the next verse. It was spoke over them. And stunned, I'm sure, at this moment, these brothers by the words, by the accusation of this steward of Joseph. And so with this stunned response uh, and and stunned uh, reality as they hear the words of the steward, they say this in verse 7. Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? It's hard to say that the brothers didn't have logic here, because they did. In their response, there's very logical thinking. In a sense that, do thieves voluntarily return valuables that they just recently stole? That seems daft, and so they put this to the steward. Why would we steal uh, and then voluntarily give it back to then steal again? It seems logic, doesn't it? logical, doesn't it? And so they were certain of their innocence, so much so that they volunteered an extreme punishment upon themselves. Let's read verse nine. Verse 9, this is what they they were putting up as uh, what they would do. It says, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also, that's the other brothers, will be my Lord's servants. They were sure that they did not have it and they had not stolen it. So the steward probably struggling to contain a smile. I could just imagine me in that circumstance, knowing what Joseph has done and seeing these brothers' reaction and knowing you're going to find the, the cup in, in that youngest son's uh, sack. He starts to open every sack. Um, just imagine that moment. And so he does. He, he begins. He begins with Reuben. And he goes from Reuben all the way down to Benjamin. And the question is, what was Joseph doing here? What was Joseph doing here? Well, I think the same as he was doing the day before. He was interested in only one man. And it was Benjamin. And Benjamin in the sense that he was waiting to see what his brothers would do. When their youngest son was found guilty, he was testing the other 10 brothers to see the choice that they made over their brother, Benjamin. And imagine this moment a lineup of 11 brothers, smug, sure, confident in this moment. As each sack was opened, they grew even more confident and maybe even jeered the steward who was doing what he was doing. And then, as as he arrived at Benjamin's sack, there it was, the silver cup. And no words are recorded here at this point. This is interesting, isn't it? The narrator does not, the author does not Write down any reaction really to the brothers in the sense of their actual words. But by the brothers' actions, we perceive so much. Read verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. One commentator, Wenham, says this. When Joseph disappeared, it was only Jacob who tore his clothes. Now all the brothers do. The first sign of fraternal solidarity. Something new was happening. Change was happening. What would they do? Would they hand over Benjamin and save themselves? No. They were not going to abandon their favorite or their father's favorite, favorite son. They were not the same men they were before when they sold Joseph into slavery. And so they tore their clothes and they went back to Egypt with tears running down their face. And so we arrive at the second point. We see Joseph's accusation in verses 14 through 17. Joseph hadn't left for work yet. He was still at the house. He was still there. And notice something here. It says this. They fell before him on the ground. This gives us a sense of their groveling submission to the Lord in lowercase l. That's Joseph. Now, we can't avoid the reality of Joseph's dream being fulfilled here again. Much like it happened in the day before in chapter 43. Now it happens again in chapter 44. But notice the subtle differences between the bowing down of the brothers in the chapters. In in chapter 42 and 6, it says Joseph's brothers bowed before him. In chapter 43 and 28, we read the brothers bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And then in chapter 44 and in verse 14, which is where we are today, it says... The brothers, they fell before him. And there's no doubt that Joseph's brothers demonstrated the dynamic fulfillment of Joseph's now 15 or 20 year old dream. There's no doubt about that. The dream was happening in real life. The future was in play. But in their fearfulness, the brothers do not notice can you imagine this? We see it all playing out for us in these scriptures. But yet these brothers, as they bow themselves down now three times, they do not realize that the dream that Joseph had many, many years ago, that dream that they, sh- they throwed back in his face, uh, is now playing itself out in reality. They're oblivious to all that is going on. And they're unaware of what is to come. But Joseph maintained good posture. He composed himself. He watched his vivid dream play out in front of his eyes. He certainly knew what was happening. He asked if they know another man who can practice divination. And that means knowing the future by supernatural means. Now, we don't know... That he actually did practice divination, my guess that he, he wasn't into reading the tea leaves of the day. It just doesn't, doesn't strike me as that sort of man. But it did say to the, but he did say to the brothers, uh, and what he said to the brothers meant that the brothers were in an impossible situation. There was no way out, seemingly. There was no way we're going to get out of this situation now. There's too much evidence stacked against Benjamin for this. So look at Judah's response in verse 16 as we push through this chapter. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found our guilt. And it says, behold, we are my Lord's servants. Both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. You see, with frustrated but honest words, Judah knew that there was no way they could clear Benjamin. The impeccable Lord, the Joseph of the day, had all the evidence that he needed. And the the brothers brothers knew it. But in their excruciating pain and in that excruciating moment for the brothers, having just torn their clothes and and sobbed all the way from uh, where they were back to Egypt... The brothers said something that is absolutely remarkable, as we have just read. Maybe you missed it. In the second half of verse 16, God has found out the guilt of your servants. To be a grasp of the enormity of Judah's words in these moments, as Judah admitted their guilt, he understood that it was not Joseph who uncovered it, but God. Benjamin was under their care by admission of their father, yet because of their sins, God had reached for them and exposed them at their most vulnerable. Not only this, but in Judah's declaration of their guilt, he says it in a way that actually that they all accepted that God had uncovered their guilt, their sin. And in Hughes, uh, an Old Testament scholar said this, and since they had all offended together, they committed themselves to suffer together. So they all committed sin together, now they all are committing themselves to suffer together. And how did Joseph respond? Did he crack? Did he stop his line of accusation? No. He adds an excruciating twist in verse 17. And you're sort of saying, Joseph, please, let's, let's just give this up. But he continues in verse 17. It says, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Joseph pushed and pushed and pushed again to see what his brothers would do with Benjamin. And in this moment, he had recreated perfectly the original group of the earlier betrayal. Can you see it here? This is a recreation of what happened all those years ago. The conditions were perfect for a second betrayal. They were perfect, but at a much more attractive price than 20 pieces of silver. You see, the reward for giving up their brother and sending him on and going home to Canaan was their own freedom. And so what were they going to do? And so we arrive here at point three, which is Judas interceding in verses 18 through 32. Judas interceding. Judas steps up to Joseph and says in verse 18, Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord. Please let your servant speak a word into my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. In these very moments, Judah intercedes for Benjamin's freedom. He does this in two ways. He gives the backstory to Benjamin's presence in Egypt. So why was Benjamin there in the first place? As we read, we won't have time to look at all those details. But between 18 and 32 we see it. And then, secondly, he predicts what would happen if Benjamin does not return to his father. And so, in verses 19 through 24, we see Judas arguing that the reason Benjamin is here at all is because of the persistence of Joseph's questioning and the insistence that the younger brother be there. He was brave, wasn't he? He almost threw this back in Joseph's face. He's saying, the reason that we're here, the reason that that son, uh, Benjamin, is here is because you insisted that he be here. Pretty brave. And so this interceding happens, this moment of interceding for his younger brother, the favorite now of the father. And this man, Judah, is now stepping up, standing in front of Benjamin and going, hold on a moment. This is happening all because of you, Joseph. And in verse 25 to 29, he recounted his father's fear of losing Benjamin. Oh, how could uh, this possibly happen that they would go back without Benjamin? Yet as Joseph listened on, he was not only tuned into the emotive reality of his father, but he was informed by Judah of things he never knew. His first thing is this. Firstly, when his brothers abandoned him and went home, he now found out that his father had a heartbroken cry that came out, as we read way back in chapter 37. And it says this, Surely he has been torn to pieces. Joseph had never heard this from his father before, but now it is revealed because of his brothers saying what his, father, uh, his father's reaction was to, to Joseph being killed, apparently. Secondly, that the father's cry still echoed and resonated in Judah's life. There's no way that Judah would have said what he said unless it resonated with him. That all those years ago he heard his father say these words and he can still remember them word for word. So Joseph's looking at his brother who once hated him yet sees a love for his father that he saw, uh, never saw in him before. And thirdly, Joseph now knew that his brothers spoke differently about the sons of Rachel. Remember, Rachel, who had two sons, Benjamin and Joseph, and those other brothers, they always spoke bad against those two favorite sons. But yet now Joseph sees in his brother Judah a love for the favorite son that he never saw before. He certainly didn't experience it himself. So there is a transformation happening here. It is taking place in Judah's life. It is taking place in these ten brothers' lives. And this is happening all before Joseph's eyes. And in verse 30 through 32, we read this. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Judah quoted the very words of his father, Jacob, and had made it clear that losing Benjamin was on him. It's on me if he does not come back. The guilt of that would be carried with Judah all of his days that the brothers had held to their father's words. Do you see it? As the brothers have now held to their father's very words. And that they had shared them passionately with Joseph. In a plea for their youngest brother. Showed a monumental change in the life of these ten sons. Transformation has made a difference in the brothers lives. This covenant community of brothers was now moving forward to loving solidarity. They had repented of their sin before God and before Joseph, as we read. They had been forgiven, the they had, had forgiven the unfair favouritism of their father evidently because they loved their father in a way that they never did before. And so they loved their father, and they loved their favoured or his favoured son. And they are willing to pay for him at an immense cost. And so we see, fourthly, Judah's substitution in verses uh, 33 and 34. The transformation was incredible in these men. But now we see it demonstrated even more in Judah's willingness to take Benjamin's place. He was willing to change places with Benjamin. Judah had truly been transformed by the love of God. Well, then, as we think about this, I just want to read a quote. It's on the screen for us by a man called Dr. Barnhouse, American preacher. He's a uh, radio pioneer and writer, and he summarizes it beautifully. And I just want you to follow this on the screen. If you can read that, hopefully you can see it clearly enough, but I'm going to read it here. Here was the eloquence of true love. Love so burningly manifest, so willing, willing to take full responsibility before God, Love which thought only of Jacob and Benjamin melted the heart of Joseph. Such love moved Moses to ask God to blot his name out of the book of life. Such love prompted Paul to wish himself accursed for his brethren of only they, if only they could be saved. Judah was transformed by divine love. God was working in Judah's life, He was working in the brothers' lives. In both hidden and observable ways. However Jacob saw in Judah's strong character. The one who would bear the covenant line. Which has uh, been prophesied. That Judah would be the man that we saw. Although all of his mistakes in his life. He would be the one who would carry through. That through him and the line of Tamar would come uh, a savior above all of this world. God was working in his life. And in a number of weeks we will see this and we will read in chapter 49 and 10. I'm just going to touch on it now. It says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the, tri- the tribute comes to him, and to shall the obe- be the obedience of all peoples. Here was the wonderful thing. Judah's willingness to suffer for his brother foreshadowed. It foreshadowed substitute atonement of his ultimate son. Let me say that again. Judah's willingness to suffer for his brother foreshadowed the substitute atonement of his ultimate son. And that was Jesus Christ. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And so with this I want to finish And it is this final point that there is transforming going on here. We must never underestimate the transforming grace of God. In five days time we begin the first event of ten events in the gathering. Do we walk into it believing with all of our hearts that our God The one we serve with our lives can transform all of the lives of the lost who walk in here during the gathering. If that's what he wills, that's what he will do. Do we realize that we have a book here with words that simply don't inform but transform? Do those of us here this morning who do not know the Lord God himself personally realize that he is a God of transformation? He is a God who deals with those who seem utterly lost and bring them in to be absolutely found. Do you realize that could be a reality for you in your life because of this God that we serve and we read of in the Bible. And finally, do the followers of God this morning here in this room, in this house, realize that transformation is not just a one-time thing? Transformation is not just a one-time thing. See, it says in... In the Bible, these things, and I want to read this to you, says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the renewal of our minds. That by t- by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and acceptable, and perfect. We're on a journey of transformation. Yes, in that moment of our lives where we came to Christ and we were truly, truly transformed from darkness into light. We were transformed from being. Uh, A child of uh, not of God and a child of God. And we were adopted into his family. Yes, but it does not end there. We cannot stop there. We've got to move on. We've got to continue on with God by the power of the Spirit. Being transformed by our minds into the likeness of his Son. And we must desire to go out. As we go out in this week and in these next few weeks. And as we think particularly of this period of uh, concentrated evangelism for us as a church we must realize that we can go out with this God on our side and we have men who are going to come and faithfully preach God's word and that he is able to transform each one in this room. That's the confidence we have as we step into it. No matter how many are here, no matter who comes, we believe that this word doesn't simply inform but it transforms lives. And so may we pray that by God alone, by his word alone, by his grace alone, and by faith alone, that we would see true transformation in many men and women in the coming days for his glory. We pray. Amen. Let's sing together then as we close. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We're going to stand and sing this, after which we're going to uh, spend some time around the table, giving thanks to God for all that he has done for us in his transforma- transformation work. All of those uh, who believe can take part of the table. All of those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, please stay and just let the emblems pass you by. If you have to leave, then make make your way out during this hymn, and we'll greet you at the door, uh, and we'll say goodbye to you. But let's stand now. And let's sing Amazing Grace. Thanks. I to the table then Uh, turn to Romans 6 please Uh, just as we can